In the midst of living in our disposable society, I am beginning to catch the scent of a new breeze blowing, a desire for permanence, and today we want to talk about how you can live for something permanent, something that will never fail. Take a minute. Can you name something that will never fail? Here is our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wordson, to share with us about one of the non-disposables that God himself says will never fail. I'd like you to turn back there to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we would like to finish up probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to look at a verse that's very famous in all of your minds, in verses 8, the final paragraph of 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13. Begin with these words, and if I were to quote the words, you've all heard them over and over again. Love never fails. How many of you have ever heard that? Love never fails. And I was, as I've been meditating and praying to the Lord about this paragraph of Scripture, it's called to mind the idea of disposables. And I got to thinking about all the disposables there are in our culture. Name some of them. Well, you can tell where my mind gravitates. Automatically, I thought of disposable Jennifer thought it too, so you know I know where she is too. You know, and I remember how I rejoiced when our kids had finally escaped, you know, from that time, and we no longer needed disposable diapers, and I no longer needed to struggle with pampers that were supposed to hold but they didn't. So you needed to change brands, or you needed to go to pampers or anything. Disposable diapers. What are some other disposable things? Another thing that I thought of when uh, Joshua and Janae came along, we no longer needed glass bottles. You know, you didn't need a glass milk bottle. Now, there were some other reasons why I didn't need them for Joshua and Janae, but some of the rest of them, some of you used those disposable plastic containers. And sometimes when Mary was too tired and Dad didn't need to get up in the middle of the night, I would get one of those disposable plastic containers, stick in the microwave. I had it down to a perfect timing. One minute on our microwave would do it perfectly. No longer burning baby's mouth. And then you just throw the thing away. So you have disposable plastic containers for the formula. What are some other disposable things that you can think of? Lighters, disposable lighters. All right, what else do we have that's disposable? Dishes, paper plates and napkins and all that. Good. Whenever Mary doesn't want to spend all that time cleaning up, you get the disposable plates out. What else are, is there that's disposable? Flashlights, disposable flashlights. We don't want them to be disposable, but usually they end up being. You know what I noticed around Midlothian? Around Midlothian, they bring in hundreds upon hundreds of hundreds in a very, very unique way, a disposable item, which is the lifeblood for many of you. Disposable automobiles. You ever thought of all the disposable automobiles they bring into Midlothian? I mean, they drive in these trucks, crash. You know, they're just flat as a pancake. And there you go, disposable automobiles. If you stop and think about it, look around you, and I want you to try to find something that's not disposable. You see, what really hit me about this paragraph of Scripture is that it doesn't tell us about disposables alone. It tells us about the non-disposables, the things that will never be smashed like a pancake and put into a furnace and you know, they're just completely melted down. And that beautiful 
MG or that beautiful Corvette or that beautiful BMW, that beautiful Mercedes that someone just put all their life in and all the meaning of life. And just like that, it's gone. What 1 Corinthians 13 tells us about, I want us just to adore the Lord about this precious gift. He talks to us about a non-disposable thing. He talks to us about some disposables, some important disposables in the spiritual life. And then he talks to us about some non-disposables, especially one significant one that will never, never be disposed of. And I want to just share with you from the depths of my heart, my longing as a pastor teacher is for every one of you to not build your life on disposables. The thing that hurts me the most, the thing that I talk to the Lord about the most, is that agonizing deception when Satan works in your life and causes you to begin to pour in all your energy and all of your desires and all of your commitment into what is disposable. What is non-disposable is love never is disposed of. Now, the word that's used here for love never fails goes back to the previous paragraph and talks about the fact that nothing can stand against love. Nothing can attack love and wipe it out. Nothing can can come against it. No darkness can hit it and cause it to be snuffed out. Because we're not just talking about uh, a gooey, romantic, human love. That's, That's a beautiful thing, but it might not necessarily endure. And this chapter is often drawn out of the book of Corinthians and applied in just general areas that the Lord never intended for it to be applied for. We're not just talking about any kind of love. We're not talking about a love that we define it any way that we please. We're talking about the Christ-like self-sacrificial giving of the Lord God. We're talking about that reality in the heart of God that I can't totally define. I can tell you the way that it acts. I can tell you that this love of God, this love of God in Christ is a patient love. I can tell you that Christ patiences you today. That Christ kindnesses you today. It's bad English, but it gets across the activity of God. As we sit here, Christ is acting kindly towards you. Christ is acting patiently towards you today. Christ is not puffed up with pride. He's not arrogant. Christ is not jealous in the sense that that he covets what someone else has and wants to have it and is jealous of someone else's success. Christ is totally at ease in his personality about his abilities and who he is. Christ doesn't keep a record of wrongs. In other words, as you look back over your life, every single one of us can remember things that we've done that have totally failed Christ. Things that we have done that have made him very angry at that activity because it's sinful and it's so negative and it's so destructive. And yet the moment that we come in repentance and we say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry, I ask you to forgive me. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And 1 Corinthians 13 says that love never keeps a record of the wrongs that are done against it. So Christ is totally not keeping a record of the sins that we've committed against Him. Christ 
is the ultimate definition of what Paul is talking about when he talks about love. And it's this love. I saw a video, a marvelous quartet of singers that were singing about the power of love. And everybody ended up dancing in the streets. And they talked about, we can overcome. We can do anything because we have the power of love in our life. And I was thinking, no, you, no, you can't. It's arrogant for me to say, I can overcome anything because my love is bigger than anything. What the group was saying is, our love, the passions within us can overcome anything. No, they can't. I'm disposable in myself. And my feelings are not ultimate reckoning points. But the power of love is in my life. And it's the power of Christ. And the power of Christ is in your life. And it will never fail. That reality of the person of Christ loving through me will never be disposed of. Nothing can attack it and can overcome it. And that's what Paul means When he talks about love, never fails. Because he began this book by talking about the foolishness of the cross. And how the wisdom of the world in chapter 1 and 2 was mocked in the foolishness of God's gift of its sacrificed Savior. So when Paul talks about love never failing, he's not talking about the power of human love but the power of Christ-like love and Christ living inside of us to enable us to reach out and to love others. And therefore, love never can be destroyed. It also will always endure, which is the point of this paragraph. Love will always endure. Now the Apostle Paul talks to us about some things that will not endure, some things that will be not eternal. He talks to us about some things that we might not expect to be abolished or nullified. In fact, Mary, when she was reading over my outline, she said, Dave, are you sure that you're, this is what you meant to say? Spiritual gifts are disposable? She was saying, Dave, what in the world are disposable spiritual gifts? Brothers and sisters, I cannot build my entire life on what I'm doing right now. Let me share something with you. Very much of the heartbeat of my life is to do what I'm doing right now. To be very honest with you, my heart within starts to churn because there's a drive within me to want to share God's Word. It's very meaningful for me to be able to study God's Word and to have the Holy Spirit illuminate some ideas and then to be able to share it with God's people. And there's a tremendous drive in my life from the Spirit to do that. But I want to share something with you. You will not listen to me and get your seat sore every Sunday the moment that Christ comes. You will never have to listen to me again. You won't come and say, oh, we want to learn because when Dave teaches from the Word, there's some things that he brings out that I never saw there. Because that's what a lot of you will say. Say, Dave, I didn't see that there. But after we talked about the Holy Spirit started to work in my life, I said, yes, the the, the Lord is saying that. And it it builds me up in my faith. And it motivates me to want to study more on my own and to learn on my own. But I want to share something for you. When we get to heaven, you won't need that. You'll know God's word just as well as me, if not better, if you can even talk about better. You You won't need that anymore. You know what else? 
You won't need a prophet anymore. You say, Dave, where are you getting that from? Look at the verse. Love never fails. Then Paul says, but whether there be prophecies, they will be abolished. They will be nullified. They will come to a time where they're no longer needed. This marvelous first century gift, which was very much alive in the first century, it's what gave us the Holy Scriptures. It was that ability where the Apostle Paul would have the Spirit of God descend upon his life and fill him, and he would begin to declare in an intelligible way the very revelation of the thought of God. And he would be able to tell us about the fact that Christ is coming, something we could never find out through our own personal investigation. But Paul would reveal to us, there will come a day when you will not all sleep, but you'll all be changed. And that marvelous hope that Christ is coming back would be revealed to a group of believers. And we now have it in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 5. But Paul says there will come a day when the prophetic gift will cease. And what he's saying is that there will come a day when you won't need to have special, designated, gifted mouthpieces for God because every one of you will be able to stand face to face with God and let Jesus talk to you. We're going to find out later in this passage there will come a day when your heart will be so one with the Lord Jesus that you will know His thoughts. You will have that kind of intimate relationship and you won't have to listen to someone else. We'll all be able just to praise together from the same kinds of intimacy, the same kinds of knowledge. So you can't build your life on just the teaching gift, just even the prophetic gift. Whether they be tongues, there will come a time when they will cease. I don't believe that Paul means to make a big deal exactly about when prophecy ceased and when tongues ceases. I really don't think that this passage gives us very much insight into exactly when some of these spiritual gifts might cease. It doesn't really tell us that. That's not its point. Its point is to cause us to realize that these things are not sufficiently strong enough to build our spiritual lives upon because they will not endure forever. They're disposable. And that marvelous ability that we're going to be talking about, we're going to go into 1 Corinthians 14. And we're going to just go through verse by verse. And I I am going to talk to you very openly about the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. The spiritual gift of prophecy. And I've learned some new things in going back over that material and studying it more carefully. And what we're going to try to find out is we're going to try to get into the heartbeat of what Paul was really trying to tell us. I think there's a lot of fear about the charismatic movement and the non-charismatic movement. And the sad thing is that I feel that both sides many times are missing the main point that Paul was trying to get across in those verses. But what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 13 is that you can't build your life on the ability to speak in tongues. Maybe some of you are from a charismatic background and you build your life on the idea of getting high in church. You like to get really high and have the Spirit of God just overwhelm your emotions. And man, you can remember some time in your life when we could have peeled you off the ceiling. You were so excited. And Paul says that's not all there is to the spiritual life. It's not enduring. We'll learn in 1 Corinthians 14 it is a tremendous uplift to be totally controlled by the Spirit, to be filled with Him and to have Him take control of our life. But you can't live for that high. It's not strong enough because it won't endure. 
whether or not tongues was the language of heaven or whether it was an intelligible human language that was not learned is a debatable issue. But I want to share something with you. When we get to heaven, we'll all be speaking whatever language is the heavenly language, and it won't be any big deal. Everybody will do it. So it's not that important. It doesn't last. There will come a day when it will cease. It won't be needed. But love always endures. Knowledge really hit home for me. Because as I look back over my spiritual pilgrimage, I think that probably there's been a great deal of time building my life on knowledge. In other words, trying to find out another fact. Trying to, to sit by Dave Lowry and for both of us to sit there and be able to say, well, you know, we do as well as anybody else that's here. And, and, and I remember those days. They were great. They were joyous days. They were days that really honed Dave and I as we sat together class after class and learned. But, you know, there was a great danger in those days as well. There was a danger in pursuing those doctoral degrees because it was possible to feel, you know, when I get those doctoral degrees, when people recognize that I have that knowledge, then I'm going to be somebody. Then my life will have meaning. Then my life will be significant. Then I will have accomplished what I'm supposed to accomplish. And I'll really feel good inside about myself. And Paul says, David, knowledge is not a sufficient basis to build your spiritual life upon. Because there will come a time, like I was just sharing with you, when everyone will have that knowledge that knows Christ, when the Spirit of God will make the people of God so knowledgeable about the Son of God that they won't need teachers anymore. We'll just need love and praise and bringing adoration to the person of God. So beware of the gift of of knowledge, which in the first century was very much related to the gift of prophecy. It was that ability we learned in the early part of this chapter to understand all mysteries and to have all knowledge. You see how those two go together? It's those profound insights that a man like Paul had into the thinking of God, into the plan of God, into the purpose of God. And as good as that is, it's not strong enough to build your spiritual life upon in verse 9, Paul began to develop this, this worship of knowledge and, and revealing the danger of making a cognitive Christianity or a head Christianity the ultimate foundation of the spiritual life. And he says this, For we all know in part, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. The Apostle Paul who wrote those words knew more of the revelation of God than anyone else in all the Scripture except Jesus Christ. In the book of Romans, there is probably a more complete elucidation of the thought and the plan and the purposes of God than anywhere else in all of creation. And yet Paul says, Corinthians, we do not know everything about the plans and the purposes of God. We know in part. And even the prophecy that we give. Now, he's not saying that the prophecy that he gave that's recorded for us in the Holy Scripture is inaccurate. He's not saying that it's not a clear revelation of what God wants us to know. But he says, don't stick out your chest about it and think you're so smart because it hasn't begun to be told. Remember when John closed the book of the Gospel of John? He says the, the heavens couldn't contain what could be written about the Son of God. So I could go to seminary for nine years and say, well, I now control the Word of God, which I don't. 
I can't even control the revelation God has given us. But if I'm ever lifted up with pride and say, well, now I control the Holy Scriptures. Paul says, no, Dave, you've only got part of it. It's going to take all of eternity for you to be able to comprehend the height and the depth and the love of the true God of heaven and earth. So there's no room for pride. There's only room for childlike dependence. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away with. Now, the key thing that we need to ask ourselves in this verse, in verse 10, is what do we mean by the perfect or the complete? The bringing together of all things. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he uses this phrase, means the coming of Christ. It's when Christ returns and takes us to live with him and begins to set up his eternal kingdom. For example, in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul will say this, not that I have already attained or had already become perfect. Then he goes on to say, but I press towards the mark for the prize of the upward call of God. In Philippians chapter 3, he talks about his life like a journey where he's pressing towards maturity in Christ and he looks forward to a day when the perfect will come. Paul does not use the idea of the perfect for the canon of Scripture, although he would hold that the revelation of God in the Holy Scriptures is perfect in the sense that it's without error, that it's all God-breathed, that it is complete in the sense that it's all that we need for life and for godliness. He would use that, but Paul did not use this terminology about an idea that at the end of the first century, the perfect would come, that would be the completed revelation, and that's when all the spiritual gifts would cease, which is sometimes the way this text is taught. That idea of the perfect equaling the canon of Scripture is not common to Paul's thought. Paul would believe that, that the canon was accurate like that, but he did not use the phrase the perfect to refer to that event. He also did not use it of an idea of when we grow to maturity in this life, there will come a time when we no longer need spiritual gifts. That's really not fair to Paul because that's almost to demean some of the spiritual gifts. In fact, sometimes even some brothers that are very close to me have tried to say, well, the Apostle Paul is saying is when you get spiritually mature, then you won't need, for example tongues anymore and they use that as an argument for the fact that tongues is a bad negative thing paul does not say that the spiritual gift of tongues is a bad negative thing he doesn't say that he would never tell the corinthians that because in their day there's no argument that it was a legitimate gift of the spirit now we'll talk about some dangers and some reasons why I believe that we don't have God giving that direct revelation the same sense that he gave the Corinthians. But I want to make it very clear that Paul would not derogate tongues or say that it was an, a negative thing. What he would say is that both prophecy and the gift of knowledge and the gift of tongues will be done away with. They will no longer be needed because the prophecy will all be fulfilled and everyone will be speaking the language of heaven. They will no longer be needed when the perfect, when the Son of God and all of His glory returns and takes us to live with Him forever and ever. 
And what that should do in all of our lives is cause a humility. If I'm a Bible church person, it should cause a humility in my life. I won't be proud about my knowledge. I won't be proud about my degrees. I won't be going around where we know the book much better than you do. That's not spiritual maturity. That's childishness. And if I'm a charismatic, I won't say, well, I speak in tongues. And the Spirit of God comes upon me and causes me to, to jump higher than I could ever jump before. And I roll and I'm all excited and the music just moves in me. And I'm the spiritual one. I'm the one that's really close to God. Paul would say, no. Neither one of you have got your eyes in the right place. You've got to get your eyes on the ultimate lover. You need to get your eyes on the love and the patience and the kindness and the forgiveness and the freedom from resentment that can only come in Christ. In other words, character. A growing, maturing character that one day when Christ returns will be made complete. And that idea of child, against childishness. You see, it's childish to get your, all of your life centered in the things that don't endure, that don't last forever. And that's why he says in the next verse, when I was a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned, I spoke like a child, I reasoned like a child, I thought like a child, but now that I've become a man, I have put away the things of a child. What the Apostle Paul is saying that in his own life, there's a sense in which the Lord is bringing him to a place where he now knows the things that he needs to focus on that will endure. And that's what he means when he says, now that I've become a man, I put away childish things. The childish things that the Corinthians needed to be put away was their dependence and their pride and their divisions over the fact that they were building their spiritual life on what the Spirit of God was doing through them and all the exciting gifts they had instead of building it on togetherness in a family and building up one another and getting involved in one another's lives and really caring for people and loving people like Christ loves them. And Paul was trying to get them off that childish trip of pride of thinking about themselves and trying to get them to think about others. He also, in this verse, is insinuating this idea. We're all childlike right now. And that's what he's getting at in the next verse. We're all not... He doesn't want us to be childish and to be all prideful about things that won't endure. And therefore, a church family, no matter what you believe about tongues, no matter what you believe about the charismatic movement, no matter what you believe about God's healing in the world today, no matter what you believe about any of those things, those things should never cause you to have to be divisive in the family of God. should never cause you to have to leave brothers and sisters because Paul would say, listen, it's just not that important. It's just not that important. What's important is learning how to get along. And how to love like Christ. And how to get Christ into your life more and more and more that he expresses his life through us. And even in the first century, where there was no debate about the validity of these gifts, the Corinthians had forgotten that. And I believe that much of evangelicalism across the United States has forgotten that. We're all so afraid of one another. 
We're all so uptight. We're so uptight, we can't even listen to what the other person is saying. We even forget the basic things that the Apostle Paul is trying to get across to us. And oh, how I would pray that our church family would be an open family, free from intimidation, open to allow the Word of God to speak. Because I'm a child, and so are you. Not childish, but a child. My knowledge is still childlike. And that's what Paul means when he says, you know, now we just see through a glass dimly. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know just like I am presently known by God. You know what Paul is saying? He's not saying that what he has revealed to the Corinthians about God is inaccurate. And often you've heard the illustration that when you look into a Corinthian mirror, it was all blurred, it was all foggy. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that none of us have the foggiest idea of what's happening spiritually. We don't know what happens when you die. We don't know where we're going to end up. We're all just on this planet and we're all just groping. And every once in a while there's a dim revelation from the other side. That's not what Paul is saying. The Corinthians, I don't believe, would have ever understood that because the best mirrors in the ancient world were made in Corinth. They didn't know what your mirrors would look like, man. And their women would not say, oh, our mirrors stink, let's throw them out. They had the best mirrors all over the ancient world. But what a mirror is, it's just a reflection. And what the mirror reflects is accurate. But it's not nearly as good as the real thing. Paul is not saying our prophecy is inaccurate. It's all blurry. You'll never figure it out. He's not saying that. In just a minute, we're going to get 14 people up here, and what they're going to do isn't blurry. And it's not questionable. And I'm not going to be telling you, well, you know, maybe what they believed in will get them home. Maybe it won't. Now, sometimes I doubt. I'll be honest with you. I'm a doubter deep in my heart. I don't have the gift of faith. You can pray I have that. What I have is really grace because it comes from the Lord. And it is a gift and it's growing. But what these people are going to do is going, is going to express a reality that is true. They're going to take go down underneath that water and they're going to be telling every one of you, Christ died in my place. And I believed in the fact that Christ died in my place. And if I go down underneath that water, I want every one of you to know that I was spiritually, not physically, but I was spiritually joined with Christ. And therefore, based not upon my performance, but based upon His sacrifice, I am forgiven. It's not a foggy truth. It's not a blurry truth. It is an eternally sustained, secure, clear reality. It's true. But it's not all there's to know about the kingdom of heaven. When they come up out of the water, they're going to be declaring to you that they're risen to new life. And Christ, just as certainly as Christ rose again from the dead, and he now lives eternally, that they are allowing Christ to live in their life. That they're beginning on a lifestyle where they'll allow the person of Christ within them to live through their life to help them to grow and become the men and women of God that the Lord Jesus wants them to be. Now, there's nothing blurry about that. But it's not all there's to know. But aren't you glad we know that? What I want you to realize, what we see in the mirror is a reflection. It's not the face of God. 
I haven't seen Jesus face to face. I haven't had my mind become totally united with him. You know, some of you in the modern sense are on a journey to learn about yourself. And you've gotten a lot of, a lot of highs out of learning some new facts about yourself. I want to share something with you. You know the journey that I'm on? I've taken some deep journeys into Dave Wurtson. And there's some real crud down there on the natural side. I find out some things about myself that I don't like at all. But you know what? The Lord Jesus has already taken a journey into Dave Wurtson, and it didn't take him very long because he knew me completely just like that. He knows me inside and out. No stories could he hear that he doesn't know the truth. No private things that I've done could he ever find out that would surprise him. He knows me through and through. And I want to share something with you. Knowing me through and through, he didn't scowl and scold me and walk away. He knew me through and through. And he stretched out his arms on Calvary. And he forgave me. But he did much more than that. He came to live in my life. And he created me a new creation in him. That's what salvation is. And every one of you that have come to faith, that's what your faith is. And the essence of your new identity in Christ is the love of this chapter.